0: Hello, welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. Our guest in this episode is Tony Novosel. Tony is a historian at the University of Pittsburgh and the author of Northern Ireland's Lost Opportunity, The Frustrated Promise of Political Loyalism, just published by Pluto Press in 2013. We discussed Tony's own background and how meeting Irish people in the US in the early 1970s led to developing a lifelong interest in the politics of Northern Ireland and how he came to study progressive unionism in particular, leading to the publication of his book, Northern Ireland's Lost Opportunity. We then discuss this research itself, tracing the development of a left analysis within the UVF and the Progressive Unionist Party through the 1970s and 80s, and the key figures and political documents in that process. There's uh, one minor correction uh, noted by Tony is that Gusty Spence was in the Royal Ulster Rifles and not, as stated in the discussion, its successor, the Royal Irish Rangers. Um, Tony also mentions the cover design of the book, you can see that in the podcast notes, um, and there's also a few uh, links of interest there as well. The Irish Left Archive is available at leftarchive.ie. Uh, we welcome any feedback on the podcast and the archive itself. You can contact us uh, on the website by email at contact at leftarchive.ie or find us on Twitter at IE Left So thanks to Tony for talking to us for this episode and thank you for listening. Thanks Tony for coming on the podcast. So first maybe you could... Tell us a bit about how your interest developed in Northern Ireland politics, and um, particularly in researching loyalism.
1: Okay. Yeah, it actually goes back to 1973 when I was 20 years of age, and this is a kind of a roundabout story, um, but I was a factory worker here in the United States. I didn't go to college, and I uh, actually had gone to trade school to be an auto mechanic, mm-hmm. and I was working in a factory in Pittsburgh, and myself and another guy, he was 20, were just... It was a dead-end job, didn't pay well. It was a union job, It still didn't pay well. And it was going to take us seven years to get two weeks holiday. So we decided to quit. And right. uh, his father dropped us off on the turnpike, the motorway. And we started hitchhiking together. We'll just figure, out, we'll figure it out as we go along. Hmm. Hung out together for three days. He decided to go to Canada. I decided I wanted to go down to the Jersey Shore. Um, and I ended up moving into a... Uh, being there for myself for a few days and just serendipitous. Uh, I ran to a woman on the beach who I hadn't seen in three years who then said, you know, why don't you come over our house? We got all these people you'd probably really like to meet. And it was a boarding house where there were at least 20 students from Queen's University overworking for the summer. And there was this whole other large contingent of students from Northern Ireland uh, who were down working for the summer to get away from the conflict and also to make some money. And I ended up moving into the house. And that's how I ended up, that was my first connection into Northern Ireland. So then when I went back to Pittsburgh at the end of the summer, I got a job as a mechanic for about eight months, saved enough money and then said, I'm going to Belfast. I I told everybody I met, I'll see you next April. So I ended up just saving enough money and came to Belfast in 1974, uh, April of 1974, two weeks before the UWC strike. So so I was there during a UWC strike. I was there during Dublin Monaghan. And uh, I was always politically aware. I always loved history. I I read a lot, even though I didn't go to university. And I was very much in my early days of really starting to read a lot. And so it was just like, you know, as a 21-year-old being thrown in this situation I got to meet so many people at that day I wasn't meeting anybody politically or active was all these just various people I met and then it just got me interested and I started getting books reading books about the conflict and following the politics and following it really closely Mm -hmm. so that was my introduction in coming into Northern Ireland and that began a lifelong uh, obsession is the best word of putting it (laughs) with Northern Ireland because that was 20 that was—I was no, I was 20 years old at the time when I went to Wildwood for the first time, and so Northern Ireland has been in the conflict has been part of my life, going on 50 years now. So, uh,
0: did, did you think um, at the time? I mean, your interest, initial interest in visiting Northern Ireland was visiting friends. Do you think at the time you understood the? situation you're entering into or were you not thinking of it in that context
1: i wasn't really i, I knew there was the violence i'd followed it in the news i mm. i remember you know reading in the newspapers about it and following it and like all americans my in having at that point having moved to more like when i was a trade unionist and i was, I was active in my union at which mm. i got very active later in life there so i was I might have not understood being a leftist or being liberal left or whatever, but I would have gravitated towards like supporting liberation movements and things. Yeah. So my initial, like all Americans, would have been like knee-jerk reaction would be, well, why does anyone want to why do you want to stay with Britain?
0: Why right, don't yes. they want a
1: republic? And so I would have been vaguely supportive of of the uh, the I you know the uh, the Republican movement, mm-hmm. maybe not the violence of the IRA, but. The idea that you know there should be a republic. And I would have viewed what I did know, the little I knew of unionism or Protestantism or lo- slash loyalism, would have been, as I put it in the preface of my book, which I saw as a I saw it as a monolith. It was a fascist, you know, it, at best it was fascism, but it was a monolithic movement. And and even the majority of the people I had met in Wildwood in my early days in Northern Ireland would have been. They wouldn't have been what you call IRA supporters or republic supporters of the armed struggle, but they would have been nationalists, mm-hmm. and their 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 meant their, their uh, outlook would have been nationalist even if they didn't support the violence, Um, and they wouldn't have supported the violence. And so, you know, it's funny you end up taking on the political beliefs and attitudes of the people you're hanging around with. Yeah. and then just to kind of go on it and. Uh, in 1975 i ended up in port rush for an extended period of time and again in 1977 hmm. but it was weird because in port rush it was the first time i'd met ordinary unionists because hmm. i didn't realize that area was very strongly unionist area yeah and i remember talking to people who were proud to know and paisley or being supporters of him and who had these other ideas which i had never uh one-on-one engaged with and that was a real eye-opener okay it didn't change a lot of my opinions but at the same time all of a sudden i'm going wait a minute how can anybody I remember having these conversations late night and thinking you know how can anybody like ian paisley or how can anybody be a unionist mm-hmm. and then but i never got confrontational i just would ask questions to learn in that direction so that was the beginning of my evolution as well in terms of politics and trying to follow what was going on
2: and you went back to the united states after that is that correct
1: yeah i went i was in i was in northern Northern ireland for two months in 1974 right i then i went worked in wildwood again and i got got a job as a, i got a job in a factory in 75 74 75 and I worked there until April, was was gone for seven months. And I came home in uh, end of November that year and then uh, went back again in 1977 for about five months. From that point on, it was periodic going yeah. over. It was usually for maybe one to two weeks. So, and then it was like, That was a really bad economic period in America and everywhere. Hmm. So I was usually going from one job to another, being made redundant, picking up another job, being made redundant. Hmm. And so between 81 and 87, I didn't get back to Northern Ireland. And I got back in 87. And then I got back in 91. And then 94, uh, and sorry, 95 it was, I got back. And then I started getting back much more frequently because I ended up starting to work with a program. Uh, Was initially through the Training and Employment Agency in Belfast, which is now Department for Employment, I think, or Department for Education. I can't remember, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the name of it is now. Um, But the program was known as the Business Education Initiative. It's now known as Study USA. And through somebody I had met back in 1975 who was involved in the program, they said, well, look, do you think you would be able to put inductions together to prepare the students for going to America for a year and then be their support network for a year? So I started that in 1996. Right. When I started that, that opened the door for me, traveling much more regularly, uh, at least twice a year I was getting to Belfast. Hmm. And then when I got full, and I finally finished my PhD in 2005 at the tender age of 53. I ended up uh, got I got hired as a full time lecturer, which then gave me my summers. Which then I was start. That's when I was able to start doing the research for my book. Right. When I started getting my summers off.
2: So you'd been moving into academia, obviously before you you know to a process where you got the PhD. And had you been engaging academically with uh, Northern Ireland during that period? Like, was your research essentially about that, or had it varied? <laughs>
1: You're gonna laugh. Well, uh, I, my, PhD, my PhD is in Soviet history.
2: Oh, really? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I did <laughs> I did a I, I did an intellectual history of uh, Nikolai Bukharin, okay? Yeah. Wow. Yes, and I, my, my dissertation was uh, looking at Bukharin on uh, whether or not he was, yeah. My starting point was I took up from Stephen Cohen hmm. that Bukharin may have been the liberal alternative to Stalin And so I examined all his theoretical writings between 1915 and 1925 and then wrote my dissertation about that. So that was what my dissertation was. But while I was doing that, that's when I got brought on to do the orientations. I was traveling. Mm -hmm. So while I was completing my Ph.D. in Soviet history, I was also actually kind of getting geared up okay, to do this because I finished my Ph.D. in September of 2005. Yeah, And I was over in March of 2006 on spring break for a week, beginning my preliminary research in a Lennon Hall library Yeah. with a vague notion of what I was going to do.
2: Yeah. And at that time, were you attached to um, an academic institution?
1: I was working at Pitt at that time. Yeah. I was a full-time academic advisor and a part-time instructor. Right. And then once I finished my PhD, I got hired in 2006 in the history department as a full-time lecturer and academic advisor. Oh, so I got flipped my full-time, I was a full-time lecturer and advisor instead of being a part full-time advisor and part-time lecturer.
2: This is slightly off topic, but I mean, did you find the um, institution was supportive of you moving in a quite a radical direction away from your doctoral work? No,
1: nope, Yeah. You know? my, my committee was amazing. I had, uh, uh, I had an incredible chairperson. Our, our system is very different than yours in PhD work, mm-hmm. and uh, my chair was just amazingly supportive. And he knew the kind of work I was doing uh, while I was doing my PhD, because my it took me 15 years to finish mine because I had uh, being older, I had family difficulties and family like a lot of illness and relatives and uh, parents, so I had a seven year gap where I didn't touch it. And he was supportive of me being able to get back into it. Now, and it was really helpful. In fact, the interesting thing is, when I did the first draft of my book, he was one of the he was the first person I sent to it for editing, even though he knew nothing about the topic. but he could point he could he was so good at picking out contradictions, digressions, things that had nothing to do with it. And it really helped focus the book. I sent it to a bunch of people to read. But, you know, he was one of the ones that really helped me with
2: it. Can I, can I ask? I mean, Pluto obviously is famous left-wing, left-inclined publisher. Did you set out, in a sense, to have it published by someone like Pluto? Or were they one of a range of people who you had in your minds? Um, I mean, how did that link emerge? I'm just curious. Yeah, like...
1: that, that link. I had sent my... Uh, I'd been like There was a number of people even in Northern Ireland who were extremely helpful. And one mm-hmm. who's at Liverpool now is Pete Sherlock. Oh, yeah. Pete sure. Shirley was incredibly helpful throughout the entire process. So I've been turned down, probably even even my own university's press turned me down because they said, we don't publish books in this field. And, uh, you know, and I'm fine. And then uh, a number of other publishers turned me down. I sent out to probably about 11. And actually, to be honest with you, I hadn't even thought of Pluto. And then one day I told Pete, says, well, how's it going? I emailed him what was happening. He says, look, send it off to Pluto. And he says and send it off to such and such. He, he named the, the fellow. And I did. And I didn't think anything of it. And then I got an email back from Pluto. And I read it initially. And I was so frustrated at this point. I just thought it was another rejection. Right. And then I was getting ready to delete it. And I said, No, I'm going to read this again. It didn't sound like a total rejection. And what they wanted me to do was rewrite my proposal. The proposal wasn't strong enough. And so I rewrote the proposal. Then I had to write a business plan uh, because of the nature of mark- uh, book selling now. Mm. And uh, I had to guarantee a sale of 400 books uh, to be able to get on, but, Well, simply so they could recoup their money yeah, uh, yeah. because of the nature of publishing. And yeah. Because what Pluto did is a survey of bookstores mm. and gave me the responses. And one of the responses from a major bookseller in, in Ireland was, there is absolutely no market for a book of this sort, and that was the kindest. That was one of the kinder ones. So they, you know, understandably, were not going to were you know, it was, you know weren't going to take a risk. Mm-hmm. But by that point, in my evolution of doing things, because I had been doing the work in the the Northern the Loyalist community, mm-hmm. and I had done uh, a talk to a small group in summer of two thousand nine. Then I did a talk at the Northern Irish supporter clubs in October of 2009. I did a series of talks in 2010 and 11. So by the time that my book was coming to be published, it was all the knowledge of the book was already spread out in the community. Yeah. So I had like 200 books sent to Belfast. I had 200 sent to my university. I did a book launch at the North Belfast Unemployed Resource Resource Center. And we so I gave away a lot of books for. I gave it to like. Group, community groups to say you know you got stakeholders these were people who gave me a lot of help here's a box of books give it out to your stakeholders or sell it and keep the money you know however you want to do it so a lot of the, the number of the books I gave it to people to sell so they could fundraise for and keep for themselves because they had been so inst- helpful for to me and I did that with the you know the with Burke as well so, yeah, so by the time I got the book, I had no, uh, I got t- the contract with them or with that, I had no doubt that I was going to be able to sell 400 books up front. And they were all gone uh, within uh, a couple of weeks after they were delivered into Belfast and delivered it at my university. Wow, that's fantastic. And unusually, for a history book, I've actually gotten three royalty checks. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I've <laughs> talked to people in my department and they were actually shocked <laughs> because <it doesn't> happen. <laughs> that's, that's... not much, but it was still, it was nice to get it, you know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, this, this raises another angle because obviously the amount of research you did, it seems to me like it was a 2 process. Like you obviously were doing primary research in terms of interview and in terms of Looking back through the documents, I'm presuming some documents were given to you by people involved, and others you had to go to the Linen Hall and whatever.
1: I I got all of them from Linen Hall, every one. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And the 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 stuff from the Sunday News. A friend of mine, Richard Reed, who published a book on called Paramilitary Loyalism, He. Mm. he he went. I I told him what I was looking for. He went. I paid him, and he went and did the research for me, right. uh, the, the Belfast Telegraph archives. But every document that I referenced in the book, there was, there was only one document that wasn't, and Roy Garland gave it to me. But the rest of the documents were all in the Linen Hall Library.
2: So this, so the process of getting to the book, how long would you say that took? I mean, I know this is sort of in the weeds, but it's it's just it's fascinating to talk to somebody who's done a, a, gone through this process and. Yeah
1: yeah initially in 2006 i started preliminary research and then in Mm -hmm. 2007 i went over for initially for two months with the idea i was going to write the grand history of the uvf and uh and then i realized i don't i didn't have the resources financially Mm -hmm. i was not tenured faculty so i couldn't take sabbaticals i my work could only be done in the three four months in the summer and i was going to have to be out of my own pocket so i initially it's uh it's actually referenced in the preface i was i actually cut my trip short two weeks Mm. and i was like you know what i can't do this it's not going to work and i was preparing to go home and i was at a dinner at dean's at queen's with uh the people i worked with for the british council after we had not finished the inductions for that day Mm. and here comes billy hutchinson with a group of uh, i think they were uh uh, were visitors from another country who were coming up from a conflict region. I can't remember from where. And he was taking them out to dinner and he saw me, he comes over. He says, what are you doing? Da, da, da. And I said, well, I'm going home in another week or two. He says, let's have a chat before you go. So I gave him a ring. I was up at Stormont meeting with friends and I rang him. He says, well, what are you doing now? I said, nothing. He says, well, I'm up at Mount Vernon. Just get a taxi over to Mount Vernon. So I did. Hmm. And I got his I got there probably around... Three in the afternoon, half three, and we sat there till nearly half six, and just t- talking mm. about everything. And it was mainly about the history and you know things I was thinking of doing. Mm. And by the time I was done there, uh, you know, then I had a clear idea. I could actually focus on politics, the politics, the 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 things. And so that when I went home, I okay, I now had a clear vision of where I was going to start going with things. So then I went over in 2008 for three or four weeks, did more search because I couldn't stay the whole summer, mm-hmm. got a lot of material. And then in 2009, I went over for two months, and that's when I did the, the really heavy archive work and you know, at the Lindenhall Hall Library and the interview. That's That was 2009. Right. But I also have to say, you know, one of the other things the other people unfortunately he died in 2007 Davey Irvine mm. um he was actually was really helpful in the early 2000s talking and meeting all the different times and he was extremely helpful and uh he was going to be sort of my gatekeeper and like uh he'd even set up an interview with me with Gusty and mm. when, when Gusty wasn't doing interviews anymore but then he obviously you know he passed away in January of 2007 mm. And then Billy kind of stepped up and became the person that really helped me get started. And particularly that conversation I had with him that day really opened up, not opened, but clarified how I could do this and how it would be manageable. Mm -hmm. And so then when I started doing that work, whenever I'd come over for a week or two, I'd spend time in the library when I could. And then I made the decision 2009, I'm coming over for two months and doing whatever I need to do to get this done
2: right and did you know any of these people prior to that or did you... I, I knew
1: billy and davy prior to yeah i met uh, monica mcwilliams actually was in uh, she actually introduced me to both billy and davy okay and then they uh you know they they got me to meet other people and i met other those yeah. people helped me to meet other people yeah. and like especially when i started doing the talks remember i did a talk for a small group from i don't know if you know of action action for community transformation
2: it's a ACT. ACT. It's on the shankle. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Dr. William Mitchell runs it. it, it and yeah. William Mitchell runs it. And William was a great help as well. I got to know William through Billy. Yeah. And then he was running one of his workshops. And they invited me at the end of June 2000, when I was a week before I was going home in 2009. Said, you know, uh, would you mind coming and talking to the people there about what you're doing? And I said, sure. So I did. And because actually, there is a humorous story. It's a part of that. One of my students from University of Pittsburgh, she had come over with me for a month, and she volunteered, She was volunteering uh, in her spare time to work with William. Yeah. And he didn't want to bring her into this because it was a demobilization thing. Mm-hmm. But then his, his own aide hurt her back and couldn't go in. So he said, all right, you can come with us right. if, you, if you're up for it. So here she is, an American woman from Pittsburgh, And her name's Erin, E-R-I-N. Yeah. And these guys just couldn't get their heads get around by this American woman with an Aaron name would do it. She was trying to explain the connection with me. So they said, we want to meet him. So I went in and I did an hour long discussion with them. And at the end of it, uh, one of the guys said to me, you know, that's really good would you be willing to do that in a larger audience? Because it was like 15 people there. I said, sure, but I'm leaving next week. He says, well, when are you coming back? And I told him, uh, end of October and I gave him the dates about 10 minutes later, he comes back. Right. How's October 24th at noon. And I said, sure. And then that was the time I spoke in the upstairs bar at the Northern Ireland Supporters Club. And then that, then i got invited down to the psalm heritage center i got invited to the carrot fergus supporters club Mm. and i I got invited to meet other people i can't really talk about but Mm. you know but i got invited uh around to to talk to people so it kind of you know once that first couple people then it opened up other doors and unfortunately i never was able to i did get to meet gusty once Mm. i wasn't able to interview him because at that point his health was not good and his family didn't want him doing interviews. He was very gracious about not being able to do an interview with me. And I had a nice chat with him when I did get to meet him. Hmm. But he, at that point, his his health was not good. And his his one daughter told me, he says, yeah, we're protecting him. That was the way, you know, because of his health.
2: The book itself, Northern Ireland's Last Opportunity, which was published in 2013 by Pluto, covers, in a sense not a constrictive time period, but it, can, it covers a very extensive time period, but it, it's, it takes us, well... About 1972,
1: 1973, up through 1987,
2: yeah. yeah. maybe you should do a second a second one after that. <laughs> the second one. Well, actually, was...
1: there is, uh, there's another guy, it's actually an interesting point you bring up, Graham Spencer, mm. uh, who's at, I think, Portsmouth in England, who was also extremely helpful in getting me through this. Yeah, he wrote yeah. a book called the state of loyalism today. I think it's the name of it. Right. And that's the sequel. Right. Actually, so he wrote it before me, but when I was reading his, when I read his book, I was like, this is brilliant. And so my, and I even referenced it in my introduction. I mm. said a prequel to Graham Spencer's work. Yeah. So he literally covers the period that I end at yeah. like, up through the, the present day.
2: There are conflicting views within leftism in Ireland and so on and so forth as to the position of um, loyalism and the left. But we, we were always, I think when the Left Archive, as it's grandly titled, our attitude was always a pragmatic one of if people consider themselves to be left wing, then it makes sense to incorporate material into the archive. And one document that you showed us, which we found, I think, particularly fascinating was from 1985. Yes, sorry, 1985, sharing responsibility around the time of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And uh, it was a declaration, and at the end of it it notes that we're the only Socialist Unionist Party in Northern Ireland. That's the popular the, the Progressive Unionist Party. So, in a sense, taking that as a, as an end point, what your research has done is, in a sense, uh, uncover how a statement like that could be made from a party which obviously was linked to loyalism, was linked to the UVF um, and without in any sense varnishing the history of very difficult and trouble and a terrible history in some respects in the 1970s. At the same time there were seeds within that which led to a position in 1985, 86, 87 of that being an explicitly self-avowed identifying as a socialist unionist party. And I don't think it's unfair to say that your book in a sense is what about uncovering that history so would you like to talk us through that maybe
1: in terms of uh discovering your socialism or yeah
2: uh, and, and and where the roots of this lie and how this, yeah. How this develops
1: yeah it, it's actually it's all it was always there um um there was always a left wing uh you go back into the like the early 20th century the shipyards there was always a you know left liberal or a trait not maybe uh totally left but left tendency or uh, you know, real trade unionists, the people who became known as rotten prods, um, you've probably heard that term, okay, um, and those who were involved in the, the the more left-wing elements who were involved in the 1932 relief, you know, outdoor relief riots, um, those people like Sam, uh, Sam Thompson Hmm. over the bridge, you know, uh, Beth betty sinclair you know uh people like that were always they were always there i mean i'm I'm blanking on his name now he was a uh a counselor on not huey smith but there was another john McQuaid,
2: oh yeah who was a
1: a council member for the Shankill area who would have been you know very tough on the union but would have been had very much working class politics huey smith the same way in fact i just was going through some of the papers I was looking at for you. Mm -hmm. And I found an article from 1974 in like uh, a left-wing journal, you know, talking uh, glowingly about Huey Smith.
2: Who's ex-NILP.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then Huey, you know, he died, what, four or five, about seven years ago now, I think it is. And uh, yeah. And so that was always there, but it was always, as you said earlier, got submerged under the issue of the, uh, um, uh, of the border. The border was always paramount. And the first PUP from 1938 got crushed in the elections. They were running on bread and butter issues. Well, the De Valera Constitution and comes out the year before. And then the next thing, you know, it's all about the border as opposed to, you know, economic issues. Uh, but there's a really good, uh, you can get it still can get it online. There's a really good pamphlet that Billy Mitchell wrote in 2002 called The Principles of Loyalism. Yeah, And, and Billy kind of lays out the background of where this thinking came about in the early 70s. And he points out, and it's been, you know, like I think Aaron Edwards has done some work on it as well because he's done history of the NILP, hmm. is that there were people who were in the UVF who had trade union backgrounds, okay? That were not simply... You know, uneducated or whatever, you know, like, you know, just thugs as they were portrayed, who maybe you know, uh, who had these already ideas of bread and butter issues and who were thinking in these terms but who had but had those thoughts but weren't really formulating them in the in the year of the conflict because it was about quote unquote defense. Mm-hmm. But the person who uh was, according to Billy Mitchell and others that I've talked to from that era. The person who was really instrumental in starting to try to move them towards this thinking was the Reverend John Stewart, who was a Methodist minister on the Shankle up in Woodville at the the top of the Shankle. And he was an old uh, trade unionist himself. Unfortunately, he died in 1977 of cancer. And so he was taken fairly early. But he was, according to Mitchell and others, he was trying to get the UVF People to also think in terms of politics, in terms of the bread and butter issues and looking at the idea of, OK, what are you what's going to happen when this is all over? And so that was I would say, as I mentioned in the one chapter book, that thinking has always been there, but it was always it was always secondary to the uh, the issue of the border. Mm-hmm. And when the border is threatened, all these things got put on the back burner. Yes. OK, and was put down at the bottom. And the person who really brought this to the fore in the 70s and within the UVF, in Raham in particular, was Gusty, Gusty mm-hmm. Spence. And Gusty himself had a trade union background. Gusty was an older, he was much older than most of the other men that were ending up in Long Kesh at this time. Mm-hmm. And he had he had service in the British Army and, he you know, he was self-educated. And he basically was thinking, all right, well, great, I was, I engaged in violence, but this violence is going to have to end. And I think the, I think I used a quote from somebody in my book where he said, when this is over, are you just going to hand power back to the blank, blank, blankety blanks that caused all this trouble in the first place? So he was thinking about, okay, taking the lead from people like Stewart looking at the history of trade unionism and left, you know, I, I, won't, I won't go left wing, but liberal tendencies within hmm. unionism that were, they're always there, but were always submerged because of the border. And if you look at the um when the unionist state changed the voting rules back in 1920, 22, 23, it was to uh on local elections, it was to do to undercut the nationalist vote. When they changed from proportion representation to first past the post in 1928-29 it was to undercut the labor vote within unionism mm-hmm. there was a labor tendency growing mm-hmm. well that was a threat to their power and think about the nilp in the 60 early 60 elections mm-hmm. they were becoming the opposition
2: yep.
1: and that you know and then when the pr- trouble comes up what happens to the nilp gone, so again uh, that's a long answer but it's it's the, the tendency isn't like Plum Smith pointed out in my book, and others I talked to is there was always a good strong labor tendency. and but it was it always would get knocked on the back burner when they were was under threat. Um, but these were people who were looking for a way, okay, the war's gonna have to end. How do we end it? And then what comes afterwards? And that's what Gusty, in particular, was trying to get them to think of inside the prisons and and uh, for, put, put on the outside as well. Hmm. One of the other people who I would strongly recommend and she was my gateway drug into loyalism was a Sarah Nelson who had been a social worker on a shankle. and she wrote a book called Ulster's Uncertain Defenders. Yeah. now some academics don't like it from what I understand I thought it gave me a really it gave me an insight into something very different. Uh, that I hadn't thought of to begin with in terms of politics, because she talked about the political movement that was taking place, mm. but how it also confused people when Billy Mitchell wrote like a seven part series on a United Irishman in combat, yeah. like people were getting combat on their doorstep. <laughs> why are we reading about the United Irishman? Okay.
2: The Northern Irish Labour Party influence seems to appear very, very early I mean, you, you mentioned yourself how the volunteer political party becomes the first political manifestation of the UVF right. at a time when the UVF is, you know, is engaged in, 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 in paramilitary action. But like as early as, I mean, the first election was...
1: October 74.
2: Yeah, October yeah, they 74. They got
1: hammered. They they lost yeah. their deposit. Yeah. And there was, and Billy, actually, Billy briefly covers this in his biography, autobiography this summer this past summer. And there was a, there was just like within Sinn Féin and the IRA through the seventies into the eighties, even into the early nineties, there was a struggle between is, is the political, what is the politics going to wag the dog, or is it going to be the armed struggle? Mm -hmm. And the, uh, even before they got beat, defeated in the election of 74, uh, or humiliated is the best way of putting that one. Um, there was already a great deal of tension inside the UVF of, abandoning this political project. We're not abandoning it, but making sure the political project stayed secondary to the military project.
2: Right. But, you know, they're still willing initially at least to go with the political to some degree. Right. Uh, and, and, and the other side as well is, and I think you'll state this in your book, was it the, were the initial comments from the Red Hand Commando? Um, on the political side, as distinct from the UVF, would that be correct? Or, or...
1: they would have been. Yeah, there would have been a lot of overlap because I mean, you had people like Flint McCulloch and uh, you know uh, uh, Plum Smith, who were actually in the compounds with Gusty. I mean, right. they, they were in the compounds, and they, they, even though they kept their se- separate command structures, um, you know, that uh, they still collaborated on politics. You know, they, they collaborated on their their ideas. And it was actually hard when I was doing my research, like when I was looking at stuff, the stuff that's being published in Loyalist News was, was that Red Hand Commando and UVF or was it UVF and Red Hand, or UVF and the Red Hand Commando is publishing it? And it was difficult to get a sense of it. And because, because he, Combat did publish things. So what I ended up doing is like, okay, it's coming out in Loyalist News. And it's it's definitely Red Hand Commando. And then when I got talking to people um, who, that's what my, and then I verified that with people who were involved in writing the documents. And it would have been people like Flint uh, and and Plum Smith and others, which is interesting. When you look at what they're doing, uh, I mean, Flint and Plum were 19 in 1970 when they they founded the Red Hand Commando. Mm. And here they are three, four years later in prison, now starting to write these documents. Mm-hmm. And there was a, there was one interview with an anonymous red-hand prisoner that I, I referenced in the book. And it was clear, I once reading it, I knew that was Plum. I knew it was Plum that they were interviewing. And it was talking about solving the conflict, ending the conflict, and what their ideas were behind. The 10-point plan that they came up with in 1976 for peace, honor, and justice, Mm-hmm. That was written by Plum and Flint McCulloch. You know, they were like, what, 24, 25. Billy Hutchinson, people like Eddie Kinner, Martin Snowden, under the impact of the, the compound system, Spence University, yeah. had the time to sit, had the time to think and start sussing out, what where is this going to go?
2: It, you point to a number of things. Firstly, they begin to develop this concept of shared responsibility, which presumably was to avoid using the term power sharing. Yeah. Well, Um,
1: can I I jump in there?
2: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah,
1: of course. So actually, it's really interesting with sharing responsibility. Mm -hmm. They do mention the fact that they didn't want to use the term power sharing, but they also didn't agree with the idea of power sharing.
0: Right.
1: Um, Their argument was the, their argument was, is it's not about sharing power in society. Mm -hmm. It's about sharing responsibility for the running of the society so that you're not just about getting power and you're going to share that power out you're going to share the responsibility for how this society operates. And when you look at the chart that's in the one document mm. of this assembly that they created, man, it's talking the civic forum that ended up in the Good Friday agreement in there in one way, mm. in terms of co-opting non-voting civil society. Um, the idea of the way they're going to divide committees to the, yeah, the make sure that there's not no one uh, party, political party could gain dominance over the rest of the parties. Yeah, so they, they saw from their point of view, it was after 50 years, as Gusty put it, of unionist misrule, then it wasn't about using that power to run society longer. It was about sharing the responsibility for how that society was going to be run.
2: You point to um, dispenseration on 12th of July, 1977, in a sense, as a pivotal moment. Perhaps you could expand on that yeah, a little I mean, bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a culmination of this thinking that's been going on. And, and when you look at it closely, I mean, it's gusty. He, he says it in one of the last paragraphs, I speak only for myself. And it was setting his stall out in opposition to what he saw going on on the outside of the prisons with the, the, the way the conflict was going mm-hmm. and those who didn't want to listen to him. But he was setting it out and he kind of, he kind of brought together everything that had been happening that, with the people under his tutelage. Uh, in inside Long cash and setting us that this is what's got to happen. We can't go back to the way it was, nor should we want to. Mm-hmm. And so that literally underpins the thinking of the people who formed the Progressive Unionist Party and the, the documents the PUP was formulating in this period in terms of trying to find a way to create a fair, just and equitable society, which, as you cited earlier, was going to be they, they saw themselves as socialists. Uh, so, Union socialist, you know, but the interesting thing was that you look at some of the combat articles, they never use they can't use the term socialist. They actually, de- the, the term that was developed, David Urban, I think, might have first used it working classism as, right. as a term they de- developed with that. Yeah, so Gusty's speech is the Gusty speech is really important in setting out his stall and what he was trying to accomplish. But the reality is, is uh, I remember I when I interviewed Davey the one time I asked him about that, he says. Was it gonna change anything? Not a chance, okay? Nice. Uh, and this is where, where here's Gusty moving this direction. He's here mm. and most people were still here. The people yeah. he had been working with inside Long Cash and Spence University mm. and who were listening to him were with him. Mm. But mm. The, broader, the broader base and those people on the outside you Know they're in the midst of what they would call a war, and as like one Aaron Edwards pointed out one time, amidst the, bu- the clatter of the bullets and the bombs, the, the other voices couldn't be heard. Yeah. Okay, and you, as Plum Smith told me, and it's in my book, uh, that you know, you can't it's hard to talk about peace when you got people around you dying, yeah, okay? in the yeah. prisons, and you're you got the time to sit and think and write and figure out, well, what are we going to do about this, yeah, so yeah, he. So he the people he had in the prisons were with him, but the people on the outsides, you know, it wasn't reaching that larger audience.
2: I mean, obviously, obviously, there's a whole issue about sectarian murders and other aspects. And and you write very interestingly about, like, the potential for uh, not simply for collusion, but collusion in different ways where there might have been manipulation on the part of certain forces of um, the UVF and, and other groups on the outside as well. In in a sense, what comes across very strongly is that to some degree, and, you, and actually in the preamble before this, you mentioned it as well, like Gusty Spence actually resigned from the UVF.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: But then within three, four years, the um, PUG is established, the Progressive Unionist Group, and then the PUP is established. And it's clearly like something that is inflected by gusty spence's thinking and the thinking of those around him i mean it's not just gusty spence obviously there's other people and there's the the nilp the northern Ireland labor party influence as well there was it i mean from your analysis is it a case that these are people who found themselves intimately bound with the loyalist project but similarly wanted to try to push that project in a different way or to influence it towards a different form of loyalism and unionism
1: yeah there was a, yeah i think yeah, they definitely wanted to move towards a different form of loyalism and unionism mm-hmm. and they did not want it there it was clear from the documents from the early 70s and then with the pup project was sharing responsibility mm-hmm. they had no desire to go back to what northern ireland was before the ending of storm in 1972 mm-hmm. there was no desire because That that just was going to take them back to the same place that they were in in '72 with the same problems. So the goal for them was not to go back to that type of society. The goal was to create uh, of these these thinkers was to create a fair, just, and equitable society Mm -hmm. in which sectarianism plays no role, or that the sectarian headcount doesn't play any role, Mm -hmm. and that people. Uh, are going to be involved in sharing the responsibility for the society. So, yeah, I mean, there's a great quote, and it's from Henry Sinnerton's book on, on exactly this topic. So I'll just read this. And this is actually from Sinnerton's book, and he's quoting a person who was part of George Mitchell's, Mitchell's team mm. in the Peace Talks. Mm. And it kind of talks to what you're saying of what these people wanted, and here's the quote, there is a striking difference between them and the kind of provost I've met. Spence, Irvine, Hutchinson have the same kind of light in they, their eyes. And they are all men who in my opinion have gone through some personal inner redemption. They've come to terms with whatever they've done in the past or what they believed in and they believed in and they've learned from it where the provost haven't. The provost have been killed by the by it. Basically, they've come to terms and there's a light in their eyes that they're going forward Mm. in terms of the future. And George Mitchell pointed out, and it was actually in the the Peter Taylor Loyalist documentary when Mm. Taylor interviewed him, and he was talking about the Loyalist. And he said, one of the great lessons out of this whole process, which may be incidental to the result, but nonetheless important in human terms, is the capacity for personal redemption, the ability who have made serious, tragic errors, violent errors, commit brutal atrocities to accept responsibility, to be punished for it, to accept their punishment, and then to change, to genuinely change. Mm-hmm. So, Definitely. yeah, so that kind of gives a sense of what, you know, underpin, you know, like drove them. And as I, I tell my classes and my one friend, Rachel, did a an entire exploration of the prison protests and mm-hmm. the hunger strikes leading into the rise of Sinn Féin on Tuesday. And I'm doing the entire Loyalist project in the prisons is coming Tuesday. Hmm. And the thing we tell the students is like, if you're going to understand the peace process, you have to understand what went on inside the prisons. Yeah. Because it's not, there's people who join the PUP on the outside who support it. But the people who are going to drive that idea come from people who were part of Spence University.
2: Right. okay. Just in the prisons as well, there was some links or at least informal links initially, which you write very, very interestingly on in terms of the various prisoners from the the various groups trying to work together and to some degree being stymied by the British um, politically, I guess, in a sense, and by the structures that were around them. Um, But it's hard to tell. Do you feel there was any promise in that at all? Or do you think that was...
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, again, in Spence's terms, according to Garland and others, Spence viewed what he was trying to build with a camp council in Long Kesh mm. and the work together, that, that the lesson could be taken farther afield. Yeah. And uh, there's actually a statement it's in my book that the camp council released in 1977, mm. we here inside Longkesh have learned to share this space. Yeah. Okay. And sectarianism did not rear its I can't remember the entire yeah. quote right now. We hope that lesson could go further afield. Yeah. And according to people I talked to and people who were around at that time, is Spence's whole idea was getting people talking, getting them talking, getting them just, you know, working together and using all right, we learned to share this space, even though our values are extremely different in here, yeah. and because we have to in here. Yeah. Well, can that lesson be taken out into the larger community? The idea of the downtown office scheme working together on prisoner resettlement. Mm. So it, yeah, if maybe left alone, maybe I don't know. That's that's one of those good what if history questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, People like uh, again more stuff. The only person the prison he was a former prisons officer, Colin mm. Crawford, who wrote about this, and he views that the uh, powers that be were not going to let any. As I think it was a quote from one union's politician we're not gonna have two sets of gunmen running the country awesome. and Crawford also viewed it that uh, you know if this would have gone left to go to fruition it would have threatened the social not just the you know the idea of a you know Northern Ireland but would have could have impacted the social structures of the societies if you're if you got I mean he doesn't come around and say it but the implication is you have two sets of gunmen mm both who are coming towards a left-wing analysis of where the problems came from. Mm. Okay. Okay. And so, I mean, something what Golding was trying to come up with back in the early 60s.
2: Yeah.
1: The same idea of getting the scene, the the commonality of our issues.
2: Yeah. Did by, and we've mentioned the, the, the utilization of the phrase socialist unionist party in Northern Ireland. And that comes from 1985, the sharing responsibility document, which came around the time of the Anglo-Irish agreement and and you outline how it rejects the return to Stormont, it recognises the legitimate aspirations of both um, political identities in the North, um, makes the case for democratic devolved administration, cross-border cooperation, uh, Bill of Rights, um, the utilisation, and you, you really outline some of the novel aspects of both cross-border cooperation, though they kind of they go up to the edge of as close to sort of cross border cooperation, but they kind of duck away a bit from it. And then you you outline how they also talk about having a committee of eight judges, which would, me. I mean, which is fascinating in itself when we think about sovereignty today. But do you want to talk a little bit about that document and and. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was the fruition of a hell of a lot of work going back to 74 when they started publishing, like, within the context of Northern mm-hmm. Ireland and the VPP's, you know, founding statement. And it builds off of towards a democratic devolved administration from 1977 and then the next document in 79. And it is the sort of culmination of all this work. And it's their ideas of, like, okay, this conflict has to end. But we can't go back to storm it. We're going to have to live with our neighbors internally. And we're going to have to live with our neighbors to the south. How do we do that in a peaceful way? Mm-hmm. And it, when you look at the document, this could have been the basis, you know, what, 14, 13 years before the Good Friday Agreement mm-hmm. of putting into put place a power sharing government that or sharing responsibility government mm-hmm. That was going to basically do everything that was supposed to happen after 1998. So I think it's a pretty far reaching document uh, myself. I'm not, I, I, think, I think it's a very far reaching document. Um, when I did the talk for the Lindenhall Library, this will be a plug for people to go look for it. Uh, but uh, one of the things, you know, I, I titled it an alternative Ulster, and but I also look at it from the point of view. Is when we look at you know, the problems you have with the Good Friday Agreement, is it not time to start looking back at sharing responsibility mm-hmm. as a basis of setting up a system in which there can be a legitimate opposition, in particular now with the rise of the smaller parties, which you know it, it, with this idea of designating by community or by party mm-hmm. is sort of losing its you know efficacy, then doing things like this. So I think it's actually was a document that is still really worth looking into even today. Um, the issue of cross-border bodies, yeah, uh, they always stated back as early as 1974 on the basis of friendship, mm-hmm. okay? On the basis of friendship. And I remember when I did the talk for the Little Library, friends of mine here who belong to Irish American groups came into it. And the one was, she. she's always followed my work so she knew what I was doing, mm-hmm. but she had forgotten And she said she emailed to her group she says can you believe loyalists were calling for a bill of rights in 1979 okay and they were in shock you know that they would do this but their view was with the history of northern ireland with this with the bill of rights and the judges overseeing it Mm -hmm. is the fact you had a history of discrimination which led to the violence and the period they were living through we can't ever allow that to happen yeah we're going to set up a government which is going to have a lot of safeguards. But if we're really going to protect everybody's rights, there has to be a Bill of Rights and some way of enforcing that. Yeah. And that is that guarantees that nobody in the government will be able to run roughshod over people's individual rights again.
2: You referenced another document, which is very fascinating as well, which is the end to drift from the yeah. Unionist Task Force from... Two years later, I think, which was that was a response to the Anglo-Irish Agreement, wasn't it? Yes. And uh, the shock which reverberated through Unionism, mm-hmm. and and you point to some interesting aspects, like both the U, that the PUP and the UDA, well, was it the UDP at that point uh, in terms of their political manifestation? They were both involved with. Well, perhaps you could take it away and just. Say yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, I
1: mean, the uh, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, there's, it's actually, I had a really hard time finding, getting anyone who had a good recollection of the mm-hmm. end of drift to talk to me or to talk about it. So I had to depend on the like stuff from uh, Sinerton's book and uh, or Garland's book. And then even, uh, I forget, so I it somewhere else as well. Mm-hmm. And so I had to depend on that and I had to, like looking at the document, but the reality is that the uh, the end of drift was looking for a way of creating alternative structures to the Anglo-Irish Accord if mm-hmm. finally for the first time unionism was not just going to go say no they were going to say no but here's our alternative, and it's not going back to majority rule it's not going back to the way it was before 1972 and the two leading parties within unionism i don't think the i wasn't i'm not sure the udp existed i think it was still the new ulster political research group i may be wrong but uh but uh but anyway, they had already come up with their documents across the religious divide in 1979 and common sense in 1987. So they were already talking in these terms of no, not back to majority rule, bill of rights and things. And even uh, John McMichael actually used the term sharing responsibility in, one of in in a quote I used from him. So they were instrumental in getting unionism to start thing in alternative structures. And putting these proposals forward. However, as we know, I think at the time it was Molyneux and Paisley, um, who were the two leaders at that point, essentially bend the ideas of moving forward. because for Paisley, it was back, you know, the issue was going back to majority rule. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine I, 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 I won't speak on Molyneux because I don't know enough about where the UUP was standing at that point mm. in terms of what they wanted to go back to. But yeah, I mean, it was a, again, another, it was an attempt building off of, there was a document from the PUP in 1986, conflict or compromise, mm-hmm. conference or conflict, uh, and uh, which then again laid out their position of an alternative to the the the, uh, good, the Anglo-Irish Accord, which was part, part of the submission they put to the task force. So mm-hmm. any of the progressive ideas and the ideas that we're looking at Creating a, a much more just and equal society, hmm. and a uh, a society that would probably could function peacefully, came from the para, came from the groups representing the pa, uh, representing the paramilitaries. Oh. It wasn't coming from it wasn't coming specifically from the quote unquote traditional constitutional unionist parties.
2: Hmm. Do you think? I mean, you your book is entitled. I mean, essentially, it's a lost opportunity. Um, but do you think? It is because it came from the paramilitaries that that sort of progressive I think, and, and obviously more so in the case of the PUP, because the UDP and the NUPRG seems to have had a more rightward tilt. But do you think simply by dint of the fact it came from that part of the community of the loyalists and the uh, unionist community, it wasn't listened to, and and the nature of the UVF, or, or I mean, you know, was, there, there's there, there's
1: aspects of that. I mean, it as you well know, within the loyalist community many people consider the UVF red hand and UDA is no better than the IRA, mm. okay yeah you could if you wanted to fight for Ulster join the army join the police force join the UDR don't join the paramilitaries. So there is always that stigma and that stigma's always stuck with the PUP mm. as being a product of the of the of the UVF and red hand So yeah that's always been a problem and I remember one time taking students uh, that I, I brought students over, uh in 2008 10 and 12 on two week uh uh field trips after they had taken my class and we were riding going on a taxi ride we were going over to uh east belfast and we started chatting with the driver what are you doing i mentioned some things and he goes yeah i said well davy uh, i said you know we, we're going to go over to davy irvine's mural in east belfast he said oh, davy irvine good man but blood on his hands Okay, and it was a Protestant tra- t- taxi driver. So yeah, he was a good man. He did a lot of good, but you know what? You were one of them. And so that that's part of it. The other part of it is, and I, I do deal with it in the book, is it was it was a threat to traditional unionism. And that was not going to be allowed to happen. Your place, as David Irvine wants to use, one of my favorite quotes from him was, um, shop, smart shopkeeper assistant needed, but not too smart. okay. <laughs> And so, and there's a there's an episode that I used in the book that I got out of uh, somebody else's work. You know, blanking where it comes from. What they were doing in the Duran anglo the Court. It was allegedly a secret meeting at Glen Gall Street. Mm. They, the like, you know, Irvine was there and uh, Hutchinson was there and other representatives like the UDA were there. And it was supposed to be a secret meeting. And at the end, when they're all coming out with Paisley and Molyneux and everyone. Newspapers, cameras, everywhere. They had been tipped off by somebody like within the establishment, and Irvine was absolutely livid because he understood the optics. Here we are. We're the respectable elements. We're walking out first. But if you don't deal with us, we can't be. We can't guarantee what these bad boys behind us are going to do. Mm. And so, they, unionism could use them always as a threat. Deal with us, or we can't guarantee you. Like, the, the same thing with the uh uh the, uh the the protocol the traditional parties and this is uh the traditional parties are arguing well you know what if you don't do this there could be violence in the street we could, that you don't do this these the, the paramilitaries make it you don't do this you don't talk to us these bad people are going to do these things and you we can't control it
2: mm. yeah.
1: so there was that manipulation so for but they weren't they were only going to be allowed to go so far and no further and that even in the 1970s, I mean, Garland points it out, is there was a, a really a vicious anti-communist campaign waged against the, uh, uh, the, UV, the UVF when it began to move politically. Um, there was a, I found a series of letters by one person that would appear in various newspapers and combat, whatever. Like uh, always, it was. It, I found out who it was. I can't use the name, mm. but it was always talking about like all, my husband was a good God-fearing Christian, and he was he joined the UVF to fight for God in Ulster, and now it's a communist organization. And it, like Garland pointed out in his work, it actually had a major impact in fundraising for the Orange Cross for the prisoners yeah. and the sale of combat. So that was, it. so yeah, uh, there was it was undercut deliberately from the powers that be. Mm-hmm. And the other issue was the issue of the violence being t- touched on. And the other issue is, uh, Hutch, Billy pointed out and others have pointed out, is this sort of, all right, acceptance that we, we do the work, we fight the wars, politicians do the rest of the stuff. And bucking that system is ve- very difficult even to this day.
2: Combat is such an interesting uh, publication because it's got these, as you say, you're quoting David Irvine saying it was working classism. And, you know, in the 70s, like it's got rather reprehensively, to put it mildly, you know, it's got stuff from the National Front. But then in between them, it's also got these articles about, well, we're not communists, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's a big but there. Yeah,
1: we're not communists, but we want good housing. We want jobs for everyone. I mean, yeah, when you look at the documents, the evolution... In the early 70s, was okay. We want uh, every fair employment. You know, they, they, everybody. You know, no discrimination in employment. By the, the the later documents, they're talking about full employment. Mm. They're talking about a house for everyone. They're talking about a job for everyone who mm. can work. And yeah, so they they're moving that way. But they couldn't use the term socialist or communist. Or, yeah. Because to be a socialist with it in this period in particular was to be no different than a member of the IRA which you know be a, you're a, you're a, you must be a republican
0: yeah. okay
1: you're going down the road of republicanism if you're going that way
2: in a way i guess it's the thing of being as you say like if you're part of the system dissenting against the system in any respect is going to be problematic and particularly obviously if you're using armed
1: yeah struggle I as mean, part
2: of it i mean even more so yeah um, i
1: think i mean yeah think of the, uh i mean we just dealt with this in class last week and it mm-hmm. comes up every time and this is the question you know you know uh the loyalists wanted the same thing that the Republicans wanted inside the prisons with special category status, and there were uh, some clean protesters and some loyalist blanket men. I think up to twenty, but they had no support within their community, and they couldn't be seen to be tying their struggle with the IRAs because that was then that's the IRA struggling against the state, and so now you're you're aiding the enemy. Yeah. So it was always yeah. It was such a fine line that you had to walk.
2: Yeah. All of that said, I mean, clearly, their influence, I mean, you very you very clearly outline how so much, and it is it's certainly so much of what they wanted. Now I know um, official Sinn Féin for a Bill of Rights as well, and you can say other people were looking for power sharing, but the SDLP was looking for it explicitly, as a thing from power responsibility. But you make a very strong case like that so much of what they sought did actually kind of filter through, presumably simply form follows function, that the logic of the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement was such that it was going to have certain kind of aspects to it. And some of this inflected it. Do you, and of course, very famous. and you're talking about like how there was the optics of them used by unionism, but unionism used them in one other, obviously in 1998, very clearly in a radically different kind of context. And, and what's your feelings about that? I mean, yeah. I mean, well, I
1: mean, actually I, I would argue the opposite direction on that one in 1998. Mm. Um, It was the loyalists who gave legitimacy, who made it possible for a unionist to go in on the Good Friday Agreement. If Trimble had not had the support of the UDP and the PUP, and they didn't give it to him because he was using them, they were using him because they needed him to get in there and get as part of the Good Friday Agreement to sell it. So they were the ones... That, yeah, they made it playable to the larger community by joining him, but they were using him because they knew that they had to bring Ulster Unionists into this uh, on that end. Yeah, and I think Billy might even talk about that in his book, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, you know, Trimble needed the PUP and the UDP behind him in order to be able to do what he did. Yeah. But the PUP and the UDP needed him to get the Good Friday across the line, Good yeah. Friday Agreement across the line.
2: Do you feel... I mean, obviously, it's a frustrated, and it's, again, it's in the title of your book, a lost opportunity, and so forth, and and a frustration about it. Do you, do you feel that, without getting into the specifics, where do you see the story of left unionism going next? How do you feel about the space that's opening up, or, or... yeah,
1: I I think I think you know it may, it may not be within the pup, but I think what you are seeing amongst young people in Northern Ireland. Is a really not radical shift, but a shift away from uh, strict identities of Republican nationalist, you know, Protestant loyalist unions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, Pete sherlo gave a brilliant speech, and I'll use this as my starting point. Yeah. Pete Shurlo gave a brilliant speech to Sinn Fein's Ardesh in two thousand seventeen on sectarianism, and he laid out and I got this, it's on, you can actually get it on Slugger Tool, the actual, yeah. His his spoken remarks were a little bit different than his written remarks, but it's the same. He Mm. said unionists under the age of 40 are more equal marriage, more for integrated education. And uh, and, we have a number of things, but basically he says, under the age of 40, integrated education, mixed marriages, um, equal marriage than Sinn Fein voters. And then he says, and if you didn't know that, ask yourself why. So, and you look at uh, the fact that uh, what the UUP has co-opted Julianne Core Johnson into the UUP now, okay? They've brought her into the UUP and they're trying to reach out to young people and uh, young unionist population. And although it's mostly within the unionist population, you do see it, it, it had peaked like, a, like something like a 30% in 2012 before the flag protest, but the Northern Irish identity is number one. And that's actually a, recent polls, that identity is developing. Mm-hmm. And so you have a younger population who are more socially aware, who are on cultural issues, very socially liberal, who would support, you know, are definitely going to support the National Health Service. They're going to support funding education and they're in favor of like equal marriage, a woman's right to choose. Then you're looking at a very much a a young unionist electorate that has that are liberal left. The problem they're faced, they face who do they vote for? Mm -hmm. They can't vote TUV and they can't vote DUP, obviously. And this is where I think BD bringing Julianne in and he tried to bring in the independent counselor in from Derry mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and who did, chose not to go into the party but starting to bring people like that in and begin to address what we the reality of what young unionists are looking for mm-hmm. I mean they're pro-union Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Sherlo pointed this out that they're pro they're still pro-union mm-hmm. but they have all these other ideas What party can they go to? Well, do they shift to alliance? Do they go to the Greens? Mm. Do they go to people before profits if they're that, you know, left wing leaning? Mm. But in the PUP is not somewhere they see themselves go for whatever reason they don't see themselves going to. Mm. And that might go for many of the reasons we talked about earlier. Mm. But no, I think when you look at that population and you look at Sherlow's statistics and those are taken from studies that he's done at, at Liverpool, then I'm hopeful about young people in terms of where the politics are going. The Mm -hmm. issue is the way the political system is set up right now. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for them, their attitudes to be expressed at the ballot box. Yeah, because simply because they don't have anywhere to go to in terms. And I think Beatty's trying to do that with the UUP, Mm -hmm. you know, if they if young people like the, the PUP is the only unionist party that supports equal marriage and mm. a woman's right to choose. Mm. So if you're looking at that, go there, but many people wouldn't, they'd see that as a working class party or they might see that aligned with the UBF and they, and, or, or I'm just wasting my vote if I do that. So that's the, you know, the, the, the attitudes are there. And I, this program I've worked on over, over the years, uh, a number of the students have come, they come through Pittsburgh and they stay with me at times and I get to know a lot number pretty well. And and a lot of the younger ones, the a lot of the ones who are from the unionist uh, tradition, they're not hardline unionists. Yeah, they support the unions, but they're not like, you know, anti, they're not sectarian or anti-Catholic or whatever. And they're going, you know, these are my beliefs, but who do I vote for? You know, who am I going to vote for? Okay, I'm not going to vote for somebody just because they say I'll protect the border. I favor equal marriage or I mm. favor women's right to choose. Mm. So they're stuck. So The issue is, where are they going to go to? If that could be mobilized, and I think that would be great. And this is one of the reasons I argued in the uh, Glenn Hall Library speech about sharing responsibility, a system in which their vote would count, where you have the proportional representation and you have a system that you don't have to designate one side or the other, and they could now start voting for people who are going to represent what they actually believe in. And it's a long-winded question answer. But, you know, Pete Sherlow, I got to give him credit because that speech was just brilliant.
2: Yeah, that's, I, 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 in a sense, it's it kind of sums up, you know, the the again, the frustrated promise of a left-wing unionism. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now, yeah, and so, th- th- yeah, thank you for the opportunity to do this. I mean, oh, thank I really
0: you. enjoyed
1: it. And, and it's funny, like I said, as I joke, a joke of my two other colleagues here in Pittsburgh, as, as I joke before we started out use it here, is it, is the, the, you, you never have to pay us for ever doing a talk about what we do you, you have, the only way you're going to stop is if you have to pay us to stop talking okay <laughs> but I, I do want to point out one thing yeah, please do. Although this is a podcast they won't be seeing it so those of you who look at the front cover of my book northern ireland lost mm. if you don't know the symbolism of it i, I can't take credit for this uh cover it's got Northern Ireland's lost opportunity in white letters at the top, mm. the frustrated promise of political loyalism. And as a coffin being carried out with members of the Royal Irish Rangers, that's Gusty Spence's funeral. Uh, so the artistic director at Pluto came up with the idea, Northern Ireland's lost opportunity. We talked about Gusty's instrumental and that's his funeral from 2011. Yeah. And they sent it to me. And to get okay, and I contacted his family before I got before I responded, mm-hmm. and they were totally fine with it. Yeah. And now I don't know otherwise if it was also in the thought of whoever designed it, because the white letters against the blue background, all I could think of was, "We shall never forsake the blue skies of Ulster for the gray mist of an Irish Republic." Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's just that's just me reading too much in. But I think linking Gusty's funeral. With the frustrated promise of political loyalism, mm. was just uh, whoever did it. It uh, was a, work, a stroke of genius, and I can't take credit for it because I just was blown away when they sent that to me.
2: And and didn't he he issued any um, paramilitary um, uh, regalia at his funeral? Isn't that correct? He yes, that's why he went uh, to Royal Irish Rangers, yeah.
1: Right. Uh Yeah. Yeah. He had his he had his comrades uh, taking him to his grave from the Royal Irish Rangers. Yeah. And he had the flag of his regiment on his coffin. Yeah. Uh,
2: And in a sense, that symbolizes, yeah, his politics in a way to move purely to the political concept. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It's a very powerful cover. Yeah. Thanks. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Whoever did it, I I give him absolute full credit. It was was a brilliant stroke of genius.
2: Yeah, that's great. (laughs) So, yeah, now you have to write the next book. because you... <laughs> I know you said somebody else has done it, but now you have to write the,
1: yeah, yeah. Bring
2: the story I'm 70. up today. I'm
1: enjoying myself now. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just... closing it on 70, so,
2: okay. There's no I'm, better going
1: time. Out, I'm going out bike riding after this.
2: Yeah, there's no better time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well,
1: thanks so much for having No, me.
2: listen, thanks a million to you. And uh, it's been great to talk to you. Many, many thanks for generosity and talk to